Let me pray and we'll get started. Father, open up our hearts. May we understand your great love. May we see that it's greater than our sin. Pray that you'd restore hope. Pray that this will break in as a beacon of light for all of us. Pray you'd have your way among us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So the, probably the greatest preacher that this world has ever known, besides obviously Jesus, uh, the great evangelist George Whitfield was a great preacher in the 1700s, and God used him in the first great awakening. And he was used among the poor, but also among the upper class as well. And he was, he was given some inroads to preach to the upper class, and he had the opportunity to preach before the Countess of Huntington, and she invited a duchess to hear Whitfield this was uh, in England, and she didn't like his message. And she wrote a letter to George Whitfield, and this is what she said. I've got the slide up there. said, uh, it is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl on the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting, and I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Her pride is amusing, but it runs deep in all of us. And we need to be reminded today that just as the Duchess's pride was much, was much greater than Rahab's prostitution, because her pride kept her out, whereas Rahab's past did not. So let me see if you can complete these sentences. And some of you guys that, that read the bulletin announcements, you would have gotten this, but before David became a king, what was he? He was a shepherd. Before Nehemiah rebuilt the walls, he was what? He was the cupbearer to the king. And Joseph, the father of Jesus, was a carpenter. And Zacchaeus and Matthew the Levite were tax collectors. And Rahab was a a harlot or a prostitute. It just doesn't have the same ring to it because her na- that keeps getting attached to her name because it was true. But the story of Rahab is a beacon of hope to all of us who are beaten up by sin and have a past that they want to forever forget. We see here from this story that I'm going to share that from God's word that there's no pit that God's love is not deeper still. And it's here that we see Jesus calling out, come sinners, poor and needy, we sing this. Weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, join with power. And Rahab holds up this mirror to us that reminds us that only unworthy people go to heaven. Only unworthy people come to church. Only unworthy people come to God. We may think differently, but we're no different. Are we really any better than Rahab? Does the Bible not say about us as God's people that we're adulterous people who pray adulterous prayers that we may spend on our pleasures and use God as this conduit to get what we want in James 4? And the Bible uses these terms in the Old Testament that are painful. Whore, hoard, whoredom, whores, whoring, whorings. 80, over 85 references to God's people, the majority of these 
of worshiping false god and idols and not being singular in their devotion to God. And so spiritually speaking, we all have a past like Rahab, that we are a people who've gone astray after other lovers. And in so doing, we abandon our first love, Jesus. And Jesus said to the church in Revelation that had left her first love to repent. And Rahab is this wonderful picture of faith and repentance. And we are simply told one verse about her. She's the only woman besides Sarah who gets mentioned alongside with Abraham, but she's the shining woman who stands alone in Hebrews 11. And it just says, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So here we have this woman held up to us and we are to emulate her faith, not her past, not her sin, but her faith. So let's be reminded of the story this morning. The book of Joshua is where this story takes place. We read it in the call to worship. It's epic literature. It's a story on the move with action, drama, military advancement, conquering of enemies, and dividing up the land. And we were told that this land was going to be conquered because the people were sinful and God was bringing judgment on this people. And Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy, and the book of Joshua is all about the new Moses, who's Joshua. And he's going to lead Israel into battle, and he's going to take the land. And the book of Joshua begins with the Lord speaking to Joshua and telling him to arise, go over this Jordan, into the land that I'm giving you, and every place that the sole of your foot will tread I've given you, just as I promised to Moses. And so the Lord's repeatedly telling Joshua to be strong and courageous, don't be frightened, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so the book of Joshua, in many ways, is a completion of God's promise to Abraham, all the way back to Genesis 12, this great spine of the Bible, where God promises two main things. He promises offspring and land. And he says, to your offspring, Abraham, I will give this land. And so the coming and the conquest is the taking of the land, but it's also, he also promised that through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's Father Abraham, right? father of many nations. So the story of Rahab is the fulfilling of this promise to to Abraham that through you all the nations will be blessed. Well, what is Rahab? I mean, what we see in this story is, is you enter into this book of Joshua is not every single Israelite is saved that goes into the land. We've got Achan, who's one of God's people, and yet he's He is a coveter and he's removed from the camp and he's killed. And then the people that are supposed to be conquered because they're disobedient, yet God is already drawing people outside of his covenant to himself. And he's already prepared Rahab. And so Rahab is saved along with her family, although she dwelled in Jericho, was part of a sinful city that God was bringing judgment upon. And so if everybody in Jericho was to write down on a piece of paper, and say God's going to save one person in this whole city and he's going to, through her he's going to save the rest of her family write down the name of the person that you think God's going to save how many people you think would have wrote down on their of course they didn't have paper back then but how many people would have written down Rahab I don't think too many cards would have been turned, turned over with the, with the Rahab card on it and so in chapter 2 Joshua sends the spies to view the land and they come viewing Jericho And the king of Jericho, the mayor, I mean, it's not a big, 
you know, they say this thing took about, archaeologists have dug it up, it's about like nine acres, takes about 15, 20 minutes to walk around. So you got like, you know, the mayor of Jericho sends the local police and he hears their spies. Well, here comes the local police and they come to Rahab's house and they come to go get the spies. And, and what does she do? She lies and sends them off in another direction to pursue them quickly. You'll overtake them. Meanwhile, she's got them hidden upstairs on the roof in the stalks of flax. Now, it would be foolish for us to, to focus on her lie rather than her truth. Okay, but here's the thing about the lie, and I'll just, we want to mainly focus on the truth, but I, I don't want to pass over it. I want to ask you, I think there's a few occasions in Scripture where God commends people for lying, like the Hebrew midwives who told a big whopper that, you know, these, these kids are being pushed out so fast, before we get there, they're already out. And, and the reason was because the Pharaoh was saying, take the male babies and throw them into the Nile. And so we would say there are rare occasions where people have forfeited their right to the truth. But when, if you're ever motivated to lie, well, you need to ask yourself, why are you lying? Is this really about God's glory and, and saving of mankind, or is it about saving yourself and, and making yourself look better? And, and almost 99% of the time, we lie because we want to look better. But there can be this unbelievably rare occasion where the person that's demanding the information has forfeited the right to the truth. When the Tim Booms hid the Jews in their home from the Nazis, they had an elaborate system of deceit and deception to hide the spies because their lives were at stake. And if they knocked on the door, they'd say, oh yeah, they're upstairs, they're hiding in the trap door where we got a little 10 by 8 little room set up. No, they don't tell them that. They got a little bell that rings and it warns everybody to run and hide. Warfare is all about deception, and this was the prelude to the Battle of Jericho. And so Rahab recognizes this is God's people, and she aligned herself with them, and she does all in her power to risk her own life to save them. And in doing that, deception was employed. And I think she's commended for it. Now, moving on from her lie, we need to remember Rahab for her truth. And think about some things here. First of all, I mean... She declares her faith here in, in Joshua 2. And as A.W. Pink says, there were no Sabbaths observed in Jericho. There was no scriptures available for reading. There were no prophets sending forth messages from heaven. And here we see her de declaration of faith that word has traveled, that she's heard about this Yahweh, about this God, and how the Red Sea, how they crossed on dry land, and, and how the, the enemy was destroyed and the waters had crushed them and then she's hearing about these pagan kings and how they were taken over and how the Israelites are coming and she recognizes God is with them. God is with them. And so she says, I mean, her, her declaration is, she came up on the roof and she said, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you devoted to destruction and as soon as we heard it our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath and that's almost a direct quote of Deuteronomy 439 which is this is who God declares who he is. I'm the God in heavens above and of the earth beneath. And here she is declaring it. And she's saying, because this is true, now swear to me. 
It's like, let's make a deal. She comes up there and, and, and she's like, before I'm going to give you this rope and let you down out of this window, let's make a deal. You're going to save me and, and you're going to save my, my, my mother, my fathers and brothers, my, my father and mother, my brothers and my sisters, and all who belong to them. And they say, our life for yours, even to death. They strike a deal. She's an amazing woman of faith. And she was shrewd. And she wasn't going to let them down because she knew they were coming back. You see, she knew that her people were disobedient. She knew destruction was coming. And so her faith lands her in the New Testament three times. She's commended in Hebrews 11. She's commended in James 2 that faith without works is dead. And she's the final example of faith manifesting itself in works. And then she shows up in Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Rahab is Boaz's father. And many commentators think that her husband, Salmon, was the, the father of Boaz, was one of the two spies who went into Jericho. It could have been. We don't know. But Rahab has a son, and the son's name is Boaz, and Boaz is the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. And they have a child named Obed. And Obed has a child named, they have a child named Jesse. And from Jesse comes King David. And from King David, centuries later, comes Jesus Christ. So you get it from Rahab, the royal line comes down. Rahab's daughter-in-law is Ruth. And Ruth is David's great-grandmother. So Rahab is David's great-great-grandmother. Rahab, the prostitute. Right there. Ten lessons I want you to get from this. Number one, her courage. First of all, for her to welcome the spies, hide the spies, send off the Jericho police, help them escape by rope, all this was done at the peril and risk of her own life. If she gets caught for this, she's dead. She jeopardized present comfort for a future stake with the people of God because she knew they were coming back. She aligned herself with the people of God. How about you this morning? Revelation 6 says that the Lord is coming back. And just as the rocks came and and fell on the people of Jericho when the walls came down, Revelation 6 says the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, saying, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the land, for for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The Lord is coming back. And just as she didn't perish with those who were disobedient because she gave a friendly welcome to the spies, we are to do the same. Rahab's faith was not just courageous, it was singular. Think about this. A.W. Pink says, it was the easiest thing in the world to believe as everybody else believes, but the difficulty is to believe a thing alone when no one else thinks as you think. To be the solitary champion of a righteous cause when the enemy musters his thousands to the battle. This was the faith of Rahab. She had not one who felt as she did, who could enter into her feelings and realize the value of her faith. She stood alone. And it's a noble thing to be a lonely follower of despised truth. She was the one in Jericho, Rahab. She believed. It was a singular faith, and she stood against the rest of the city. Number three, Rahab's faith was not based on God's power. I mean, it was based on God's power, not on Israel's power. She wasn't sizing up Israel's army and abilities. She was thinking about God's army and God's abilities. I mean, think about it. Did Israel even have a ladder? 
to climb these walls? No, they had nothing. They had no, they had no artillery, no battering rams. All they had was some horns and some shouts and the walls were gonna come down. Does that sound like a good plan to you? She wasn't putting her, her faith in, in shouts and in horns. She was putting her faith in the God of Israel. You see, one commentator put it like this. He said, at the moment in which Rahab was speaking, there seemed not one chance in a million that the children of Israel could capture Jericho. These nomads from the desert had no, Ill, no artillery, no siege engines. It must have seemed fantastically improbable that they could even breach the walls of Jericho and storm the city. Yet Rahab believed and staked her whole future on the belief that God would make the impossible possible. She believed in God against the evidence of the facts. When common sense pronounced the situation hopeless, she had the uncommon sense to see beyond the situation. She had the adventurous courage to fling in her lot with God when it seemed that to do so was to back the losing side. The real faith and real courage are the faith and courage which can take God's side when that side seems doomed to defeat. Rahab's faith, number four, was not selfish. It was not a selfish faith. Her faith manifested itself in love. It expressed itself in love because she wanted her family saved. Her declaration was, swear to me by the Lord as I've dealt kindly with you that you will deal kindly, she doesn't say with me, but with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Faith is not selfish, it leads to good works and her good works save not only the spies but her family. Her good work saved a lot of people. Number five, the church throughout the ages has come to see Rahab as a picture of the grace of God, that she is a trophy of God's grace. And we see from this picture that God loves the Gentiles, he loves the nations, he will be exalted among the nations. This story didn't even need to be in Joshua. You could have gone right from Joshua 1 right to Joshua 3. Moses, or Joshua's commanded to go into the land. Three, they, they cross the Jordan River and you know, keep going from there. But no, they, they, there's this little, hold on a minute, we've got a parenthesis. We've got something the writer wants us to see, God's heart for the nations. Even as he's bringing judgment on Jericho, he's saving people. We are reminded today that at one time we were without hope and godless. Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Number six, God's grace runs deeper and goes lower than we would ever believe. Jesus, Romans 5.20 says, well, grace where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And as Jesus said in the parable, Matthew 21, 31, he finishes it and says about the two sons, that he says, I tell you the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Isn't it interesting that the people who know they're really sinners come running into the kingdom a lot faster than the righteous because they don't think they need it. Number seven, nobody's beyond the grace of God. If Rahab comes into the kingdom, Rahab the prostitute, we should never write anybody off and say someone is too far gone or beyond hope. Jesus loved prostitutes and sinners and wasn't afraid to identify with them. What about us? 
Maybe there's some Rahabs in your family, extended family, neighborhood, school, workplace. Do you shun them? Are you afraid to mix it up with them and talk to them? Jesus wasn't. I mean, Jesus takes the story of Simon and the sinful woman in Luke 7. I mean, she was from the shady part of town. She was a sinful woman. Most people all agree, you know, she was selling her body for sex. And she was shady. And, she, and, and here Jesus is invited to a Pharisee's house for supper. And she comes crashing the party. And not only does she come crashing the party, I mean, she's just a walking, ceremonially unclean factory comes walking in. And everybody's looking at her like, oh my. And she takes an alabaster jar of perfume and pours it on Jesus' feet, lets down her hair, which is a total no-no in that culture, and she begins to wipe his feet with her hair as she's weeping with these tears of her feet, on her feet. Now, Josiah Bancroft, from one of his sonship messages, says the Pharisees would have crossed the road to keep the hem of their garments from touching the dust that her feet touched because they believed it would pollute him. And here, and here comes in this walking pollution factory into Simon's house. Everything she touches has got to be ceremonially cleansed. And they're all crying out unclean. And what does Jesus do? He accepts her, and he tells her her sins are forgiven. And to get the gist of this, Philip Ryken in his commentary on Luke has an email from a missionary in the Middle East who understands that culture. And this lady missionary writes to him and says about this passage, says, the point that really struck me about Jesus' response to the woman was in complete departure from what was socially acceptable. I'm not sure if one can really begin to grasp how shocking it was unless one has spent enough time in the Middle East for its attitudes to start melding with, its, with his own. The worst sin a woman can commit here is to lose or appear to have lost her virginity outside of marriage. The most important aspect she has as a woman is her reputation. The whole honor of her family hangs on the reputation of its women. If a woman has nothing but a reputation as a chaste woman, she always has a chance to succeed. If she has everything but a reputation, she's lost before she begins. And in some parts of the Arab world, all it takes for a woman to lose a reputation is to be seen speaking to a man who's not a relative. If a man, particularly a religious man, is known to have ever been spoken of with such a lost woman, his reputation follows hers down the drain. It's a hard system and it crosses religious lines. Now consider that same system, but take it back 2,000 years to a less forgiving time and then think about Jesus' encounter with the sinful woman. You see, what Paul Miller describes in his book, Love Walked Among Us, is that Jesus opened himself up to Simon's disdain by identifying with the sinful woman, Jesus let her sins go, but in the process, he took on the stigma of her reputation. He paid a price to forgive her. And they all thought Jesus was just scandalous for what he was doing. But Jesus is showing us what the church should be doing, is loving Rahab's, loving the sinful woman. If there are these kinds of people that Jesus identifies with and he's not ashamed to be within their presence and he saves them and he holds them up as a trophy of grace, then why is the church not bringing in more Rahabs into the church? You see, we should not be ashamed to do so and we should not look down on when someone comes and they may not look like everybody else. The church should be a place of grace, a hospital for the wounded. Number nine, 
We can't look down on Rahab because we're also described as adulterers and as whores. And God uses his vivid language to arrest us and our sin. It's offensive, but it reminds us that we didn't write the scriptures. God did. And we're all lumped in that same lot of unrighteous before God. But number 10, remember how the story ends. Isn't this a great story? Here we have the call girl gets called by God. She went from the house of shame to the hall of fame in Hebrews 11 in one verse. She went from shame to honor. She's a prisoner of sin and shame, sexual brokenness. She escapes the judgment by her faith in God. She just believed in God. She aligned herself with the people of God. And in doing so, she married Salmon. And they have a child named Boaz. And Boaz is the kinsman redeemer who's the hero of Ruth. And this hero, the reason, why do you think Boaz had such a heart for Ruth the Moabite? Because his own mother is Rahab. And so Boaz has this big heart of mercy, and he rescues Rahab, and then, I mean Ruth. And then from Ruth comes Obed, and from Obed comes Jesse, and from Jesse comes King David. And then we get to the New Testament, and we see this great truth. To be reminded that in the Jesus' family tree, Jesus is identified with Rahab. He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. Aren't we thankful for that? Let's pray. Lord God, your grace is amazing. Just as was sung about, just as we've seen in the life of Rahab, And Lord, may we not forget where we've come from to think that we would stick our noses up towards others. Rather, fill our hearts with compassion. Give us love for those who don't know you. And Lord, make us a humble people and help us to reach out. May we not be ashamed to identify with others. Forgive us, Lord, for writing off certain people in our own family, in our community. May we see it. May we see differently. We thank you that your power is able to save anybody. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.